0: And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Thus the reading of God's good holy and inspired word. You've already heard just now Acts 13 read. It will help for you to keep your Bibles open, and I will pray shortly. I've always wanted to memorize Acts chapter 7, Stephen's defense, and this past year I finally got the opportunity to do it. I do not think for one second that because I've memorized this that I'm spiritual or better in any way, shape, or form. But it was very helpful for me to focus on Acts chapter 7, this moving account over a period of about four plus months. And I was also very privileged to recite it to our our church family in Doniphan on a special Wednesday evening. Well, I'm bringing up Acts chapter 7, but I'm not preaching Acts chapter 7. I'm preaching Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13 because of its similarities in form with Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7. It, It intrigued me. One thing is, they both introduce Christ from an old covenant perspective. That is, they both begin with the Old Testament story of redemption by presenting big picture events and prophecies. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of our confession speaks of the incomparable excellencies of God's word in the unity of all its parts. And isn't that the truth? So chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13 both introduce Christ from an old covenant perspective. There's another similarity. They are both a first in their own respect. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first recorded New Testament Christian martyr. And then In Acts chapter 13, that is Paul's first recorded sermon. And it is not inconsequential that Paul, who preached this sermon, witnessed the stoning of Stephen. There's a third connection and was in hearty approval of it. It very well could be that his first taste of Christian blood with Stephen gave him an insatiable appetite for more Christian blood because Luke records that Saul began to attack believers by entering house after house and dragging them off to prison. Some of these were being put to death, Luke details later in his account. At least that was Saul's, soon to be known as Paul, that was Saul's practice until he met Christ and sovereign grace on the Damascus road. He was on his way to Damascus to ravage Christians when the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse, so to speak and powerfully revealed himself to him to the saving of his soul. Three days later, rather than ravaging Christians in Damascus, this man was preaching in Damascus, Christ crucified and risen again. So although Acts 13 is Paul's first recorded sermon, it is not his first sermon. And this sermon in Acts 13 takes place a number of years later when he and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey. They had just arrived at Antioch in Pisidia. And as was their custom, the first thing they did was go into the synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath. It is there that the Apostle Paul preaches his first recorded Sermon to an audience of Jews and uh, Gentile God-fearers who were proselytes to the Jewish to the Jewish faith, and and very similar to Stephen, he began by highlighting their glorious history as God's people. He he, I believe in his heart and mind knew that his Jewish audience just needed to see that all these wonderful things in their history were there to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior he was, a now, he was now about to preach. At the same time of Paul's sermon, the New Testament had not yet been written, but the New had certainly come in with Jesus, and Paul wanted his, his audience to connect the dots from their history to its fulfillment in him. Some time ago, a friend of mine was contrasting different churches he had attended in our area, and he said that the Seventh-day Adventist seemed to emphasize the Old Testament far and away over the New. But at the same time, other churches he had attended emphasize the New Testament far and away over the Old. Both approaches fail however. They fail to recognize the unity of God's uh, uh, word in all of its parts, particularly in light of the gospel story. Believers today of all stripes would benefit from greater assurance of salvation by grasping the full gospel story from cover to cover about all that God has done to save a people for himself. The Jews in Paul's day, on the other hand, just needed to see that unity in order to know who Jesus is in the first place, as God's true promised Messiah. For to miss him is to miss everything. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, may what you have to say to us this morning Be truly an encouragement to my friends here at Covenant Family Church, to the building up of their individual lives, their family lives, and their church family that is so precious. And may it bring glory to you for Christ's sake. Amen. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the missionaries were asked to speak a word of encouragement and Paul stood up motioning with his hand. And what that meant was, you want encouragement? That's exactly why I'm here. I am God's spokesman to give you the encouragement that you need. Paul then begins to present a big-picture Old Covenant perspective in order to launch them, launch them into what flows out of their glorious history, namely God's promise Christ. Our first point is God prepares the way for the coming of Christ. The, the, the apostle could have said to the young children there that day in the synagogue. Well, let's connect the dots to see how Jesus Christ is connected to all that God has done in your history. And he begins with God graciously and sovereignly choosing Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees and all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children. And about how God kept His promise to them by making them a great and numerous people. Also, he promised, as promised, God powerfully led them out of Egypt and redeemed them to himself through the blood of the Lamb. Then, Paul says, God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. God then gave them the promised land And can't you almost hear one of the young mommies at that point say to uh, young Benjamin in the synagogue, that's right, you connect the dots from the patriarchs to Egypt, to the wilderness, to the promised land, Paul goes on, God then gave them judges, there's another dot to connect, then Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul, God then raised up David to be their king, a man after his own heart. Isn't it amazing, this glorious history, isn't it amazing what the people of Israel did to make that so amazing? No. (laughs) Not the people of Israel. It's all about what God did. As you read through here, It's all about what he did. God chose their fathers. God made them a great people. God led them out of Egypt. God put up with them in the wilderness. God gave them land. God gave them judges. Paul only mentions one thing that Israel did. They asked for a king. And in asking for a king, they were rejecting God. and apart from god's grace in jesus christ that's what you and i do we reject god we suppress god romans 3:10 and following none is righteous no not one no one seeks for god All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But that's a critical part of the Old Testament story about Israel, the Old Testament redemptive story. An important part of it is the sinfulness of the people in order to show the great need for the coming of Christ. Laurie and I are friends with a young, unsaved mother. She's been coming off and on to our church for a long time and I, because she's related to someone, and we've befriended her. And we have been praying for her salvation. And she said recently, sitting under good preaching, she said recently, I just don't like being called a sinner. Well, no, there's an honest response. But therein lies the problem. God only saves sinners. He doesn't save the righteous. He only saves people like you and like me. He didn't come to save the healthy. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Israel then asked God for a king and he gave them Saul. Next he graciously raised up David to be their king and then from King David Paul jumps a thousand years of their history to the sending of God's son into the world. Only he puts it like this in verse 23. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And for the rest of his sermon, he can't help but talk about Jesus. That's the only thing he talks about. For, the, for his first recorded sermon, once he makes this jump, from their glorious history and that promise of an eternal kingdom in the line of David and in the hope and blessing and wonder of God's Son, he can't help but talk about Jesus. He's the one. You can, you can connect the last dot now To see the full picture. Because as the fulfillment of all things. Jesus completes the picture. And these dear brothers. In the synagogue. Had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. For this very promise of God. To come to fruition. And can you imagine them hearing. Out of the apostle Paul's mouth. He's the one. He's it. It's Jesus. He has come as God's as God promised. And to strengthen his argument about this very singular point and person, he says to his Jewish audience, actually he quotes from their revered prophet, John the Baptist. Who in essence said, yep, he's the one. He is the very one. The great and last Old Testament prophet said, so great is Jesus that I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. As you know, John, his dad was Zechariah, And he was a priest in Israel. Think about all Of the many times growing up as a boy, John had witnessed lambs coming into the temple to be sacrificed, all of which pointed to this one. And now hear him say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All this preparation all this preparation throughout redemptive history that God orchestrated for the coming of Christ leads us to our second point and that is Jesus is the message of this salvation what message of salvation paul well i'm glad you asked that's the encouragement It's God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to save sinners. And the message of this of, of, of the salvation, of this salvation, is Christ crucified and risen again. First, it's Christ crucified, the most awful thing that ever took place in history, and yet the most glorious thing that ever took place in history And Paul begins in verse 27 by describing how the Jews in Jerusalem had unwittingly crucified God's Christ. And in so doing, they had fulfilled the biblical prophecies about Him. They had listened to these prophecies about Jesus every Sabbath. Yet they did not understand what they were hearing, nor did they recognize him when he came. And though he had done no wrong, they called for his crucifixion. But what they meant for evil... God meant for good so that through the perfect sacrifice of his son God's people in every dispensation would be saved through faith. As Isaiah prophesied he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed john calvin puts light on all this by saying while in all creatures both high and low the glory of god shines nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross The cross is the hour when the Son of Man is glorified. John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There on the cross, the fearfulness of God in all His great justice and infinite mercy is most clearly seen and displayed. The cross then, he says, is the deepest revelation, is the most fertile soil for the fear of God. And yet it was carried out by evil men. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written about him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And oh, you're going to love the next two words. You're going to love them. Because you've seen them in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But God. They laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen by many witnesses. God is at work as much today as he ever was. You see, the message of this salvation is not only Christ crucified, it's Christ risen again. And so Paul proclaims in verse 32, We bring you the good news that what God promised to your fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is written also in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. At first glance, this prophetic word may not seem like it has a clear connection to Christ's resurrection, but it does. It looks forward to both Christ's resurrection and his coronation as king. And Paul's audience would have at least been somewhat familiar with this. When the kings in Israel exalted their own sons to the throne, they would declare, This is my son, who is now the king. And that's what is behind this. God's message to Jesus when he raised him from the dead was, Today in raising you from the dead and exalting you to your throne as the king of kings and lord of lords, I am declaring that you are my son and I am your father. Jesus, of course, has always been the eternal son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. But God the Father's declaration of his sonship here is in light of his messianic victory over sin and death and his exaltation to a place of eternal royal honor. You and I, if I had to guess, often take the resurrection of Jesus Christ for granted. But Paul's audience needed to understand this and grasp it from their own ancient scriptures. And yet some may have been thinking, I hear you, Paul. Jesus rose from the dead. But in every other case that an individual rose from the dead, they died again. Not this time. Anticipating that thought. From their own scriptures, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And then in verse 34, Paul repeats that in his sermon. God raised Jesus from the dead no more to return to corruption. Jesus is the only one who has ever died who never saw corruption. And Paul uses King David as a contrast. King David died and his body is decayed. It's still somewhere in Israel in its corrupt state. Not only did the body of Jesus not decay in the grave, it will never decay. He was raised incorruptible. Paul says thus establishing for those dear ones who were on the edge of their seat edge of their seat David's throne forever there is no one else like Jesus he's the one and Paul punctuates this in verse 36 by contrasting King David with Jesus again He brilliantly brings it all into perspective when he says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died and saw corruption. Yes, David had served a great purpose in God's plan, but it was primarily only for a speck of time, a very few years After he had served his purpose in his own generation, he died and decayed in the grave. And David is the main contrast here with David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it applies to anyone who has ever died or who will ever die. So can I plug a few names in here? Mary, the mother of Jesus, served the purpose of God in her own generation, and it was a tremendous honor to be sure she would be called blessed by every generation. But then she died, and she saw corruption. It's the same for Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joshua, Moses, Deborah, Ruth, Daniel, they all died and saw corruption because that's what happens to sinners. But there's no one else like this man. There's no one else like Jesus. He was personally righteous and the grave couldn't even hold him. As I think it's Sproul that says we should be more, we should be a lot more, we should, we would have been a lot more surprised if he never would have risen from the dead. That's not a surprise from a person like Jesus. The son was glorified on the cross for your sake and for mine. And then he rose from the dead. So we can look at people like King David in Scripture and see some wonderful things that they did in their own generation because of all because of God's grace. But ultimately we are to look past them all one by one and look to Jesus. God's children of faith will look at the crucified and risen incorruptible Savior and there their gaze will stop. There are no other dots. This morning we have heard the inspired apostle teach in his first recorded sermon that God prepared the way for the coming of Christ in the old covenant and that second Jesus is the message of this salvation. And now we'll close with Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. What are you doing with Jesus this morning? What are you doing with Jesus as we are gathered together in the worship of God's people this morning? He's the only one. There is no other. And that's why Paul declares in verse 39, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus frees, verse 39 says in the ESV translation. The original word there is justifies. Jesus justifies all who believe in him. Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is justified. From everything from which you could not be justified. From the law of Moses. Paul is a different man, isn't he? Than the day he witnessed Stephen's stoning. He now boldly proclaims, forgiveness of sins comes through him to everyone who believes, turns in disgust from everything else that in a picture is decaying, and looks to him alone, resting in his sufficiency for salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism does an especially good job in question 56, tying forgiveness in with justification. And that's what Paul is preaching, forgiveness to everyone who believes. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that because of Christ's satisfaction, I will no longer remember any of my I will. I will no longer. He will no longer. He will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. We open this service with, I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art. If you look back in your past history with me, I would even be curious if I I didn't use that every time I came. You may get sick of it if you keep asking me. There is no surety outside of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the incorruptible Christ. There is no surety outside of Him. Keeping the Ten Commandments for salvation isn't going to cut it. I like things that are sure, don't you? You know, my mom, uh, she walked in and greeted Bruce. She said, I'm old, medicated, and blessed. Now, she always says that. We, we, we know it's coming. And, but where she lives, in, in the Lutheran home, people are dying. She's lost five friends I think I'll safely say in the last six weeks. And I'm not a big one for t-shirts and witnessing like that. But I don't think in a situation like hers, it can hurt as she serves and prays with people. I'm old, medicated, and blessed. And stemming off of that, I thought, well, what's the only sure things they say that are in this life? What's sure in this life? Death and taxes. So I'm thinking about my next T-shirt for her to be. Um, what is sure in the? What are the only things sure in this life? Death, taxes, and Jesus. But Jesus is huge compared to the others because she's not afraid of death because of Jesus. Nobody likes the process or contemplate, contemplating the process. But that's a good witnessing tool. Christians are not afraid of death. And when you talk of death in a way that the world doesn't, it, 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 it makes some people sit up and say, Wow, how can, what? What? Verse 34 draws our attention to the sure blessings of David for those who believe where Paul says this, And as for the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give the holy and sure blessings of David. Well, what are the holy and sure blessings of David? They are God's promises to David, which have been secured for all of God's children of faith by David's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. When sinners believe in Jesus, resting in none else but Him, they become members of King Jesus' eternal and incorruptible kingdom. And one day, when Jesus returns, your previously decayed body will come out of its grave, changed into an incorruptible body like unto his. And it will then be reunited with your glorified souls. And King Jesus will rule us in righteousness, if you can imagine a political system like that. In the new heaven and earth forever and ever and ever, let's let our gaze stop with Jesus. And for those who do not take this to heart, Paul gives a warning. Look, you scoffers. And, and Paul is, 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 doesn't know what God is doing in that particular audience. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Stephen told his Jewish audience what God was doing in their day. And they stoned him. But what was the response of the Jews in the synagogue when Paul finished preaching his first recorded sermon? Verse 42. They crowded around Paul and Barnabas as they left the synagogue begging them to come back so that they could hear more about Jesus. Begging This is Paul's first recorded sermon, but it's not his longest. In Troas, the saints met on the first day of the week for an evening service, and Paul preached until midnight, and then he conversed with them till daylight. There was a little kerfuffle in there with a young man that fell out of the window And I'm not applying this to you. But I'm very concerned about all of the junk food that Christians seem to be consuming on the internet, much of which is not evil in itself. But it is possible that saints are being drawn away and desensitized with their phones and everything else to the wonder and glory of the crucified and resurrected Christ there are certain things that charm you and me in this life vain idols that will come to nothing, a waste of time. They charm us. We must not forget our brothers and sisters in Antioch of Pisidia. They begged to hear more about Jesus. They begged. Fernando Ortega has a song called, Give Me Jesus. Basically, that's the song. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And it's a prayer. He struggles too. And when I am alone, he says when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Our Father and our God, We thank you for the truth of this passage that is intended for our comfort and encouragement. May your truth given to us here strengthen our assurance and take us to greater heights of thankful obedience in our homes, in the fellowship of your people, and in our witness to the world. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.